Welcome to another series of Hit the Lights. Um, I've got some great guests this series and we're, we're kicking off with Sean Passant. How are we doing? I'm very well, thank you, Gary. Yeah, I'm very well. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Obviously, I'm a long-time follower of yourself on social media and, and the good work you're kind of doing with uh, regards to surgeon lightning protection. Um, how, how are things with uh, yourself and Dane at the moment? We're superhumanly busy. Uh, and, and we have been, to be fair, for probably the last four years, we've seen a huge increase in the interest um, across the board, really, not not just surge protection because of changes to wiring regulations, but in, in the type of lightning protection that we offer as well, which for people that know us will know it's slightly different to what most people are offering. So, yeah, we've seen quite a big increase in that marketplace for us. So huge increase in staff as well which has, has been uh, fun but as ever busy and, and chaotic no i can i can imagine yeah obviously with the um regulations coming in obviously it, it's driven us um into that field of expertise where you know obviously you're, you're probably sharing your knowledge a lot more widely now than maybe uh, historically in the past yeah to be honest well, I, I mean i've been with i've been with uh, dean for nine years now um, and when I first started, I, I, I wasn't in technical originally, I was, I was in sales uh, and I used to struggle to get calls. If I'm honest, I, 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 we, we used to set ourselves a target of trying to do four sales calls a day, four days a week. Um, I'd be lucky if I got four calls a week. But people just weren't interested at all. Uh, so going back to sort of 2013, just no one interested whatsoever. Um, and it was a real battle to get anyone to think about surge protection. Um, let alone where we find ourselves now, the, the levels that the people are thinking about those things. So, yeah, really difficult. Yeah, no, definitely um, a worthwhile investment in stocks and shares. I mean, that's probably a, a good place to start then. What, so what was your journey into the, the world of, I'll say the electrical industry, but maybe more specifically um, surge protection and lightning? Yes, I, I never really think of myself as being in the electrical industry, but I guess I sort of am now. Um, so, but yeah, that, that's not really what I would have thought. Um, I, uh, I left school without a plan, uh, other than I wanted to be a soldier. So, um, I, I was 11 years old when the Falklands war was on and, um, for, for slightly naive and macabre reasons, I was fascinated by the Falklands war, absolutely fascinated by it. So I decided I really wanted to be a soldier. Um, and for people that were trying to join the army in the late eighties, it wasn't as easy as it is today. Um, because the army didn't do anything. Uh, there weren't many people leaving. People tended to join and stay in for 20 odd years. So you generally had to wait. So um, my mum wasn't prepared to let me just sit and wait to become a soldier. I had to go out and get a job. So I went and I got a job for a company at the time called FERS Specialist Contracting. Uh, and people will know the FERS name, I guess, quite instantly. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't anything technical in particular. I was just kind of an admin person in their office, which companies tended to have in those days. And I did that for about a year whilst I waited to join the army. I, didn't, I then joined the army. I was in the Royal Signals. I used to fix uh, radios and telephones very badly um, because I'm great at theory, but I'm terrible uh, at the practicalities. So I, I, I talk a good talk, but I don't necessarily walk a good walk. Um, and um, when I left the army, again without much of a plan um as much as i liked being a soldier um i didn't enjoy my job in particular uh so i left the army again no plan whatsoever and i genuinely physically bumped in people always say they bumped into people i walked around the corner and and genuinely nearly knocked each other off our feet a guy that i used to work with and in the time in the six years that i'd been in the army he'd gone from just being a kind of um an estimator in the business to becoming the uh, uh, manager of, of the branch. And he said, oh, I've, I've got a job for you. Um, you. You do electrical stuff. And I was like, no, I did electronics and it's ever so slightly different. I, I can I can tell you a bit more about, you know, multiplexing and things like that, much more than I can tell you about electrical things. Uh, anyway, he offered me the job and I took it and pretty much on and off. Uh, ever since I've, I've been doing it. So uh, coming at it much more from a steeplejack and lightning protection uh, route, but then over time I've, I've learned a lot more about surge protection. Uh, and then nine years ago left contracting because it was um, really starting to get me down a lot. Um, and I, I looked at all kinds of options and things that I might do. And, and with all the best things that happen to you in life, I find I got a call out of the blue from someone saying, um, 
are, are you looking for a new role because we've got someone that would like to speak to you and it, it turned out to be Dean and um, here I am uh, and I've been here ever since so um, and I absolutely love it so um, yeah it's the right move. No that's brilliant um, what you obviously mentioned about being in the um, in the army then so did you see any active duty during that time or, or anything like that just? No I joined um, so at the height of the troubles really uh, so um, for us, it was a very different type of army than it is now. We were never allowed out in our uniforms because of the, the, the those obvious risks in those days. Uh, we were constantly having to check under our cars and things like that. It was, it was, it was looking back now, it seems really odd, but at the time it seemed very normal. Um, I was in the army for the first Gulf War, but didn't go. Uh, and I was in the army for um, the kind of um, breakup of former Yugoslavia, so Bosnia, Croatia, all that kind of stuff. So I was in for all of that, but never went at all. So I joined the army and spent six years, just over six years in North Yorkshire. So I did two years in Catterick and I did four years in York um, and didn't really go anywhere in particular. I had a couple of nice skiing trips and canoeing trips and things like that, but didn't really go anywhere or see the active service at all. So, yeah, no. All right. Okay. No, I mean, that's still, that's still really interesting, um, you know, to spend that time in those environments. And um, I, I imagine they foster quite a care of, of learning and education. Uh, yeah, they do, actually. And um, so I, I effectively did a, a, an HNC crammed into uh, a 10 month period um, whilst still doing military training, uh, still doing guard duty at night and things like that. So you would genuinely do an, a, a whole night of guard duty and then at eight o'clock in the morning go to college. And it was a, a, a military kind of training college. So you'd be shattered from having no sleep but you were expected to still turn up and do it. And then in the afternoon, you would go and do a PT lesson where you'd go and do the assault course and stuff. Um, so it was very, very intensive, um, but absolutely fantastic. And I kind of look back now and without without realising it, there are things that you pick up along the way. Um, I, I often, when, when on the rare occasions, people ask me for advice, um, I often kind of say to them that, you know, there, there are no wrong steps. Uh, some steps might be slightly sideways and some steps may even be slightly backwards. But you always learn something with with every role or every job you ever do, even if that's what you don't want to do. At least you've learned the thing. Uh, and there are a lot of things that I do now that I didn't realize I picked up in the military. Um, and I'm not I don't appear to most people as though I am very military. And a lot of people are quite surprised if they don't know me and they've only known me maybe in my later life. Uh, they're quite surprised when I kind of say, oh, no, as a kid, I was in the army. And, you know, did all those typical young soldier things. I was I was drunk and, 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 and obnoxious and would fall over and, and take unbelievably stupid risks and things like that. I did all of those silly things. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not particularly green, uh, as some people might describe it, but it certainly taught me a lot and certainly put me on the right kind of pathway in terms of applying yourself to something and seeing things through to the end and having a bit of discipline uh, and planning how you're going to go about achieving a thing you want to achieve. And I see quite a lot of people now who might want to talk themselves as management consultants or influencers and things. And everything that I see them talking about are all the kind of things that I was told in the military. You know, you, you, you're going to assess all these risks, you're going to plan how you're going to achieve it and things like that. Um, you have to come out with some kind of recovery plan for after you've achieved what it is you want to achieve. Uh, and so all those things um, are, are broadly taught about and, and, and talked and shown to you as a young soldier. So, yeah. And, and you mentioned you're now, I'm going to get this right, Dean or Dane? It's Dean like the boy's name. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so Dean are a family owned company and our ultimate boss is Dr. Philip Dean. Um, we have tended to anglicise it and a lot of people do call us Dane and I'm as guilty as some of doing that occasionally. Um, but if I was in Germany talking to Philip, he would certainly want me to be calling him uh, Philip Dean. Uh, yeah, like the boy's name. Oh, no, fair enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm guilty of that as well. Um, so in terms of uh, your role, then what, what's it what's that encompassed as you've um, gone through the business? So, yes, I started in uh, in sales as a kind of a business development manager. Um, I wasn't particularly brilliant, uh, I have to say. Um, but other people, I guess, saw something in me uh, that I didn't even know I could do myself, which was we used to do very small seminars and I would go and do them. And usually we used to do them together. So two of us would go together. And after a while, it became apparent that my colleagues were always saying, can you do this one, Sean? You do this one. You're better at speaking than we are. You do this one. You've got a better way of saying it. You put it better. Um, and uh, then somebody retired. So a, a position became available in technical and they offered it to me and I, I took it. 
And then the chap that was the technical manager decided he didn't want to do that anymore. Uh, so he kind of stepped sideways and I kind of moved into that role. So I've, I think for about six and a half years now, yeah, about six and a half years I've been the, I've been the technical manager. Uh, originally just me and one other person and now I've got a team of three uh, under me and we're kind of expanding on that as well and adding another person to that in the very near future. Um, so yeah, growing all the time um, and we provide all the kind of advice you'd expect from a technical department, both internally to our, our, our own staff, externally to our customers. Um, but then, of course, we also get heavily involved now as a specialist consultant. So um, we, we can do risk assessments. We can do designs for people. Uh, we can do surveys for people. We can do earthing studies for people. So and I all of that falls into my remit. So I'm, I'm looking after all those things. OK, so th- th- it's quite a, a broad spectrum, even within the niche that is Surgeon Lightning. Yeah, it is. Um, and And I guess that's why I've always found it interesting um pretty much what i do is the same all the time there are there are only a handful of solutions to any lightning protection or surge protection problem um but where i do it is always different and and the the uniqueness of the site comes with some unique challenges that we need to solve so that's always been the interesting thing uh, i i could be uh, one minute i could be on st paul's cathedral and the next minute i could be on a secret nuclear submarine base and, and anywhere in between. And so that's always kind of uh, captured my imagination and, and, and captured my interest and, and meant that I've, I don't think I've ever genuinely been bored uh, doing this because it, it, it's, it, it's basically the same premise, but it's just always slightly different and slightly challenging. And mainly that's driven by the sites themselves uh, dictate how that's different, but quite broad scope of things that we, we are capable of looking at. Yeah. Yeah, like you say, there's such a variety of structures in the UK with the historical um, landmarks, even like you say, you know, of St Paul's Paul's Cathedral to the skyscrapers of, uh, you know, um, the modern era. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the one of the things I kind of know about yourselves as well is you've got the is it the I I call it the education centre or the the training school. Yeah, yeah. So we we have an, an academy, which is both physical learning space um and, and we we do some virtually as well the physical space um is, is is my preference i have to say because it's great to let people get hands on because quite often um there will be people out there who um may have never seen a surge protection device before or may have never seen what lightning protection uh, equipment looks like and what a conductor looks like and the fact that there are different kinds of conductors we're very stuck in the uk in a, in a, in a flat 25 by 3 uh, world uh, and it doesn't have to be like that in actual fact um, almost everyone else in the world doesn't do that the uk is rather unique in using flat 25 by 3 conductor uh, almost everyone else in the world uses circular conductors of, of various types so it it's good to be able to get face to face with people and show them some of that and also show them the dynamic relationship between some of the choices you make if you do your lightning protection one way it means you need to do all these other things and if you choose to do it another way it means that actually you might not need to do some of those or you just need to do some different things Uh, and being able to physically get with them and let them touch it and hold it and and stuff like that is um is, is is a really good thing to be able to do and realistically with the only people really doing it in the uk um so I guess it's quite important in that respect that we are doing it. Yeah, no, and obviously electricians, you know, in t- even in the way we're educated through college, you know, there's, there's always a practical element to the work. So, you know, engaging on a practical level, like you say, it, it's always um, uh, it probably helps it sink in a little bit easier. Yeah, so uh, my uh, my experience of, of a lot, I won't say all, a lot of electricians is that on the whole, they tend to be quite visual learners um uh, and um it's one thing to say loop a set of tails out the switch into some henley blocks and then straight into your spd it's another thing to actually physically have some blocks on the wall and the main switch in in a in a panel and then the spd so they can physically look at it and just say all right yeah okay now i've got it absolutely got it now um so it's one thing saying it it's another thing physically having it so part of our uh, academy is exactly that we have got a variety of different spds installed both data and uh, lb um so people can physically look at it and, and say to themselves all right i get it now I, I get exactly what he means so when he says we don't need overcurrent protection i get it now um so it's those it's those kind of things and we can we can show them those uh, quite uh, easily and we run a whole range of courses from 
surge protection to lightning protection uh, and then even into other areas helping to um, educate facilities managers so that they understand what compliance looks like, what, what they should expect from an inspection and testing regime, uh, what is a compliance issue and what is not. Um, and then also I think the thing that we've become most known for in the UK really is that we work in an awful lot of explosive atmospheres. So we've become quite good at a subject that's quite close to my heart, I guess, after these years, which is lightning as a source of ignition. It's, it's a huge potential source of ignition. Um, often overlooked, I have to say, in those respects. Um, and uh, to be able to do that course and deliver that course to uh, fire safety managers uh, as well, we target quite heavily, is, is, is it's quite rewarding as well. You get a, a completely different uh, reaction from people that are in fire safety uh, when you start taking them through these things than you might do to a couple of gnarly old steeplejacks who just really want to go out and, and, and drill some copper tape into the wall. But that's what they really want to do because then they're comfortable doing that. Um, mm. So you get a little bit of a different kind of response from them when you're trying to educate them and uh, enlighten them uh, than you do for other people because certainly in the fire safety world they kind of come to us and say wow we didn't know this this is fantastic and it's it's a really upbeat experience as opposed to uh maybe some guys that have been um dressing copper tape in for 30 years and they just think that i'm an annoying bloke trying to tell them how to do their job differently <laughs> to the way they've always done it before so um yeah it, it, but it's, it's a useful space and um something that we've had we, we came up with the idea gary because we're great uh, uh, sometimes at, the, at doing things with bad timing. We came up with the idea for doing it in November of 2019. We started building it and it was finished uh, on, on the, I think about the 7th or 8th of March, 2020. <laughs> and, we, and we all know what happened a couple of days later. So it then it then pretty much sat there for two years, un, almost untouched um, because we weren't allowed to have anyone in space. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's being used now, fortunately. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you, I'm sure you've got a head of steam up now and you're, you're fully booked for a little while. Yeah, although obviously uh, the, a global pandemic changes things. Most people want to do things uh, uh, virtually now. So we're, we're currently in the process of getting a rather fancy camera that will let me be in the space um, by myself and, and show people things virtually. So um, that's that's going to be one of our next things. So we're going to get a, a pan tilt zoom camera that will follow me around so I can kind of talk and point and it will follow me. Um, uh, so that's that's the next big thing that's on the horizon for us in terms of uh, training people. So we'll still have the space, we'll still have the examples to show people, but they won't necessarily have to come all the way to home first because we are in the middle of nowhere. So um, no, no, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, it's better than a, a GoPro on the head, isn't it? So, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not be forgotten. <laughs> um, you obviously mentioned you offer a, a range of courses there and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Is it can, is it one of those where you consider it CPD or is there formal qualifications as a result of, of a lot of the training you're offering? So there's there's technically speaking, there's no not many formal qualifications in the world of lightning protection and surge protection. Sadly, you can do an MVQ, um, but but that is almost exclusive of the guys that are out installing it. Um, so. Uh, we the courses we offer uh, certainly some of them are full CPD approved by SIBSI, so um, we have to have that analysed and, and checked every year uh, by the guys at Child Institute of Building Service Engineers, uh, and they approve uh, three of our courses. Uh, we have another course that's approved by the Institute of Fire Safety Management, and we're trying to get a course approved by the Institute of Work and mm -hmm. Facilities Management. Um, but outside of that, some of the courses we do are just simply here's a certificate. Thanks for coming. So you could use it as part of your CPD. If you are a, a chartered engineer or you're part of the IET, for example, as I know we both are, um, then, yeah, you can certainly use that um, to um, to keep your CPD up. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's an industry that's largely unregulated, sadly. So if you really wanted to, you could uh, you could set up a, a hit the lightning protection. See what I did there oh, yeah. uh, tomorrow morning. <laughs> And you could run that business from your kitchen if you really wanted to, and there's absolutely nothing stopping you, which is um, which is quite uh, worrying and disconcerting, really. Um, and I always use the same analogy for this, really. If somebody turns up outside of your uh, factory or office or, or, or chemical processing site, and they've got a white van with a zigzag yellow stripe on the side, and they tell you they're a specialist in lightning protection, why would you not believe them? It would be such a, a strange and grandiose kind of thing to say that was not true. Um, so unfortunately, we do have a scenario where there are a lot of people who 
don't really have as much uh, training and experience and qualifications as they ought to. Um, and unlike the electrical industry, and, and I'm aware that there'll be many electricians that might listen to this and think, well, the CPSs we have aren't particularly great, but we don't even have a CPS. So we have nothing to prove competency, really. I guess the nearest we come to is, is Atlas, which is our, our trade association. Uh, and again, for the electricians out there that don't know what Atlas is, I guess it's as close as possible to the ECA, really. It's a member-driven trade association. It's entirely voluntary. You don't have to be part of it. Um, but that's about the nearest we come to having something that can guarantee a level of quality and guarantee some kind of level of proficiency. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's pretty unregulated. So we're trying as much as we can to um, educate as many people because the more people we educate, the uh, the less mystery there is to lightning protection. A lot of people still talk about lightning protection, surge protection, and earthing as a, a bit of a dark art. It's not really. Um, you can't call it a dark art when there's a standard for it because the standard <laughs> literally tells you what to do. Um, so uh, it, it, it's um, it's trying to raise the awareness across the board. If we can get the end client to just know a few bits, they are less likely to then fall foul of, of the um, less well-educated companies that may be practicing in the industry, I'll say. Mm. And weren't you involved with Atlas for a little while? I am. I'm, I'm very involved in Atlas. So um, I've been involved in Atlas for about six and a half years now. Um, so it started out really um, with me going to a few open meetings. You're allowed to go, if you're a member, you're allowed to go to some of the open meetings. Uh, and I guess from being there and speaking to people, again, they must have recognized something in me. Uh, and when a gentleman retired, they asked me to step in and deliver their training course. So they do have an accredited designer training course. Again, it's not mandatory to have it to, to work in our industry, but it's highly advisable and very good thing to do. So I started delivering that training course. And then I was asked if I would consider sitting on the council, which kind of uh, does all of the uh, the work for Atlas, which I did. And then I was asked if I fancied becoming the vice president, which I said yes to, without realizing that actually being vice president meant that you would eventually become the president. I didn't realize that. I thought it was just a job you could do. Um, and so, uh, yeah, in, in, uh, in February of 2020, I became the president of Atlas. Uh, and you can tell by that date that I got the worst two years ever because one of the things that goes with being president is that you attend a lot of events to, to promote Atlas and, and publicize Atlas. So there's an awful lot of, uh, of evening soirees, shall we say, that you're supposed to go to, um, which was the only reason that, that my wife agreed and said I could do it because she thought I get to go out and have free meals and I get to buy a nice dress. And that all sounds like good stuff. And I didn't go anywhere and I didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, my, my presidency came to an end on, on the end of um, May this year. So and I now go into, a, into what's known as a continuity role. So at the moment, I'm technically the immediate past president. Uh, and in that role, anything that I was working on in that two year period, I'm there to make sure it's seen through because I've got all of the knowledge and, and stuff. So yeah, I'm still still heavily involved and I still deliver all the training as well. So I'm still responsible for all of the training for Atlas. Um, which I absolutely love because it means I get to come in contact with all of the young people joining our industry. So all those kind of people that, that come in and, and want to be estimators or want to be supervisors uh, um, or maybe inspection and testing engineers and things, uh, um, they come through a two-day, uh, it's a two-day uh, training course and then a two-day exam that they do with us. Uh, and I, I get to go through all of those with it. And it's, um, yeah, it's great fun. It's really good. Do you find in the many years you've kind of operated in this sector, do you notice any changes in the in the young persons entering the industry? Well, the good news is a lot more young ladies joining us, which is, is good to see at last because we're a heavily uh, male uh, dominated industry. So it's good to see that. Um, I would say that bit by bit, we are starting to become a more electrically aware industry because certainly when I started out in this industry, although we were always put into the E side of the M&E contract, um, lightning protection is by and large a more mechanical uh, um, kind of um, application. You need to know if you can drill into that and you need to know how am I gonna access that. And quite a lot of older installers and older steeplejacks tend not to think about the lightning protection system in the, in terms of it being an, an energy carrying system, which it, which it is. Um, so um, we are becoming more 
electrically aware, I would say, over time. And that's broadly because in 2006, we got a standard that said you must have surge protection. So um, that kind of started making people think about those things. So um, yeah, that, that, that's that's the biggest difference, I would say. More, 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 more women in the industry and more electrical awareness are the two things I would say I've seen change over nearly 30 years now. So. No, I think they're definitely positives, aren't they? Um, I mean, yeah. What's what's been some of the key challenges that you've you've faced over? I mean, we've obviously spoken about you know the high influx that you've now kind of got in terms of demand, etc. What's some of the other challenges that you've been facing in, I suppose, recent years? Let's say. Uh, so, um, like a lot of companies, I would say, as as a manufacturer, and and, and Dean are a, 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 a large manufacturer. They're not very well known in the in the UK but globally we we are huge so uh, we're nearly half a billion euros as a, as a manufacturer so we're, we're quite big globally um we're struggling for raw materials as, as everybody is um so we are and, and and who knew that a lot of the ingredients for certain types of stainless steel are mostly mined in the ukraine so that's currently causing a, a huge a, a huge pressure who knew that a boat being stuck in the uh in the uh, uh, Suez Canal would cause a huge knock-on effect of, of varistas not being available, uh, which are obviously a key component for lots of surge protection devices and things. So um, there's been some some supply challenges, and that's not just uniquely for us as as an industry. There have been that, um, and I think as an industry we're always challenged um, because we're seen as being a dangerous industry because people think of lightning protection and they instantly think of Fred Dibner and they instantly think of a guy with no PPE on, um, smoking a woodbine, dangling off of a, a thin piece of rope. And, and that's the that's the impression. So I think trying to change people's impression that the modern 21st Superjack is actually a really highly skilled, highly trained uh, person who's got a variety of different skills and means of accessing. So again for people that aren't really aware steeplejacks don't really have any kind of special abilities then they're not like a welder they're not like an electrician um what they are good at is getting to things so their speciality uh, lies in the fact that they can access things easily and more cost effectively than many people can when they get there they might not be able to do much else so they might literally just be painting or removing vegetation or maybe putting a probe on for some non-destructive testing uh, and if if any steeplejacks are listening to this, please don't send me hate. All right, please don't send me hate. Uh, some of you have got skills. I've come across some steeplejacks who are also qualified electricians, and I I know one or two who are qualified welders, uh, but they are very rare beasts. Um, so usually the steeplejack is good at getting to things, and it's trying to explain to people that 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 old uh, uh, Divna uh, picture that people have got is exactly that it's really old uh, it's really really old even fred himself had to stop doing all that stuff in the mid 80s uh, so you know the fact that he exists on screen means that he his image has kind of been has been saved for other future generations it doesn't mean that that's what we do that's absolutely not what a modern day uh, steeplejack looks like at all um and i actually got criticized quite heavily recently on, on linkedin for pointing that out to someone and saying the last thing our industry needs is more people talking about fred dibner yeah, we need to move that image on that's not what a 21st century steeplejack looks like um but um that that's always been a challenge getting across to people that it doesn't have to be a rickety heath robinson kind of thin bit of rope uh application that, mm. that's we very rarely do that these days that's not really what our our industry is is about it doesn't look like that very often no i mean that's 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 really interesting insight you know it's not something necessarily i'm, I'm probably i don't know i know of fred didner um mm -hmm. but i don't know a lot of the a lot of his content i know he was quite a um i've seen some of the old footage of him scaling um what's the statue in center of london and things like that i've seen him kind of doing those yeah yeah so yeah he's i mean he's he's pretty much infamous with that whole kind of tweed jacket and flat cap uh no ppe whatsoever and he'll just be walking along i remember the very first time i ever saw him on anything at all he was just walking along a piece of, uh, of uh, parapet on um on york minster which is a building i know really really well having lived in york and done this for a living for a long time i know york minster particularly well and i instantly knew as soon as i saw it i just thought i know exactly where that is and that he should not be up there that's ridiculous what's he doing uh, but of course he, he became a bit legendary for doing those kind of things um but yeah it, as an industry we've definitely moved on honestly um steeplejacks for the amount of man hours spent working at height 
Steeple Jacks have an unbelievably high level of safety and an unbelievably low record of accidents. It's just unfortunate that because of the heights involved, when a Steeple Jack has an accident, it tends to be very serious. So the number of accidents are unbelievably low. And as I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will know, the most likely people to have accidents on site involving falling from heights are actually electricians. Um, so uh, it's the number one industry for having uh, slips, trips and falls from height, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, uh, in, in terms of lightning protection steeplejacking, we have very, very few, very few incidents. Um, so it's a very heavily regulated industry from that respect. The industry itself isn't, but when it comes to the health and safety, what you're allowed to do, how you go about doing things, that's very closely controlled and um, and absolutely very, very safe. So um, it's not for me, by the way. I, I am, uh, <laughs> I've, I've, I've done that kind of stuff. I hate it. I don't like it. I'm yeah. not particularly brilliant with heights. And again, that's another thing that people find slightly unusual is that I'm not, I'm not actually all that comfortable with heights. I can stand on a roof. That's not a problem. But but standing uh, or climbing up a steeplejack ladder and you're, you know, 150 feet up off the ground just on a ladder, that's, I mean, you've got to be slightly daft. Uh, it's not, it's definitely not for me. That that side of the industry is absolutely not for me. And being in a bosun's chair, which I think is probably the one uh, kind of key image that people will have of steeplejacks, um, is actually slightly terrifying for me. I'm not. I've, I've done it once and I hated it, and I'm not going to do it again. And that's effectively that's that that plank that goes under your bottom, and the and the rope goes up onto a, a pulley wheel above you, and you can control your ascent and descent. It's it's not for me. That's that's mad. Yeah, no, I'm sure Mr. T would probably have a few things to say that I could empathise with. <laughs> I ain't getting in no chair or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not. Yeah, it's. Um, the guys that love doing it though uh they're, they're very serious about it and, and they do enjoy doing it and to be fair posting seats are, are becoming less less common these days i have to say um, oh, yeah. but the industry itself is moving more towards integrating with the electrical industry and, and it needs to it really does need to um uh the light protection industry needs to understand better um sections from the wiring regulations uh which keeps pinching things from our standard uh and uh, electricians need to have a better understanding of the dynamic relationship that they have um in terms of retrospective electrical work so any electrician that's working on a building uh that has lightning protection needs to be aware that if they're going to put an external circuit in maybe they want a, a cctv camera maybe they want uh, an automated uh, car park entry system maybe they want some additional lighting a lighting column putting up uh, they need to be aware of what they're doing because some of their actions will have an implication for that light protection system um, and at the moment that isn't always picked up the wiring regulations specifically excludes lightning and it specifically excludes bsen 6305 but it then goes on to mention it about 40 times after it's excluded it and it includes a flash density map of lightning activity and it talks about lightning protection zones so if you're going to have lightning protection zones and flash density maps and mention our standard 40 odd times it's about time that the electricians and the lightning protection industry kind of got together a bit more and and shared some information a bit more um because they don't always that's for sure no, I mean, yeah, like you say, yeah, that it's a very interesting map of the UK that we've now got in our in our regulations and lots of um, nice long calculations that we should be considering in terms of overhead lines, et cetera, and all that stuff as well. So, yeah, no, it's. Um, yeah, yeah. the good news is that went with, with Amendment 2. So we, we got rid of that horrible. Yes, it did, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yeah, the calculated risk level has gone at last. It was horrid. And, and you know, uh, I have a colleague that sits on that uh, gel uh, committee that, that, that wrote that. Um, and let's just say we don't talk about that. Um, to, keep the, to keep the conversation between us polite, we, we don't talk about that because the CRL was was horrid and, and awful. And let's be honest, nobody did it. Um, and you've got to be really careful when you're writing a standard that if you write it poorly and people choose to not uh, pay much attention to that bit because they can see that it's quite clearly a bit of nonsense, you have to be really careful because you then open yourself up to people ignoring other parts that are actually potentially very, very well written and are sensible and should be adhered to. So you have to be careful writing a standard. Uh, and I speak as someone that's involved in a standard writing committee. And you have to be very, very careful because if you give someone something that they can absolutely patently see as nonsense and they're going to ignore it, what else might they choose to ignore? Um, so the CRL was, was a, yeah, I guess a, a, a committee-based disaster. Um, so yeah, I'm glad it went. 
because it, it deserved to go in the bin. <laughs> yeah, well, they got they got it within a couple of revisions, so that's pretty good going yeah, by, yeah. by by modern standards. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't not take the opportunity then to take uh, a meander through some of the technical discussions um, mm -hmm. that kind of may be plaguing the everyday electricians. Um, yeah. I'm going to ask maybe some broad questions, maybe some specifics, um, but if you can help just kind of talk us through and we'll, we'll, just, we'll see where it takes us. Um, the, the first one is how is lightning and surge protection interlinked as an issue? Okay, so um, lightning is nothing more than massively powerful static electricity. That, that's, that's the first thing that we need to kind of work out. Um, unlike other forms of high voltage fault, which will ultimately return to source, lightning cannot. So when lightning comes down and goes through your lightning protection system and into the ground, um, a little bit like a, uh, a chubby kid doing cross-country running, it's going to keep going until it runs out of puff because it cannot return to source. So it continues to travel through the ground uh, and through any pipes, through any conductive services that may be in the ground. So your building doesn't need to be the one that's been struck to be affected by lightning energy traveling through the ground. And the standard talks about a distance of two kilometers, but we have anecdotal evidence uh, and photographic evidence, in fact, uh, of an installation, in, uh, not in the UK, I have to say, where it struck a pipeline and it traveled for 10 and a half kilometers and destroyed the transformer rectifier when it, when it got where it was going. Um, so lightning energy continues to travel. As it continues to travel, it can re-enter our buildings in a number of ways, whether it enters through conductive services or it can, using galvanic uh, coupling, it can enter our building uh, through our earthing system. Um, and ultimately what it leads to is a, a, a voltage increase on our earth bar. Um, however, however it gets there, it doesn't matter how it gets there, you, you'll see a, a difference in potential on your earth bar to everything else in your building. And that difference in potential will lead to uh, some current flow, as we know. But unlike a normal potential difference, like if you're going to put a battery in a little circuit and it lights a lamp, uh, it won't be nice controlled current flow. It will be massive, huge, uncontrolled current flow. Uh, and that is what we see as the very high frequency, very high voltage transient and, and surge event. Um, so that's that's in, in a nutshell that's how they're linked is the fact that um uh, that, that lightning doesn't stop when it's gone into a lightning protection system it carries on going that, yes yeah. that that's why we we need them and then of course we have all the other forms of, of of transient that you can create but but specifically for lightning that that's the story behind lightning and, and why we need those devices no i mean that's, that's very succinct that probably leads nicely into the, the next question the common um let, let's say we've got a very large building we've got a lightning protection system on it the common one is obviously linking the let's say the down conductors or, or whatever else is, is in the system back to the met yep. well, does that not introduce a potential obviously between them so that's our main source of galvanic coupling you can't do away with that just by the nature of electricity you can't do away with that um the only thing you can do is move it so if you have your uh, light protection system connected to your MET, your overall building earth might be one ohm. Okay, so you have a 100,000 amp lightning event and you've got a one ohm earthing system. So you've now got quick bit of ohms law, 100,000 volts on your earth bar. So you've got that potential difference that we talk about. Okay, and I, I get that people would see that as a problem and people would immediately say, well, let's remove that link then and then I don't have it on my earth bar anymore. The problem with that is a lightning protection system typically is a 10 ohm earthing system. So all you've really done is create a million volts and you've just moved it slightly outside of where that earth bar is and a million volts is going to do a lot more damage. So you're not you're not removing the risk, you're moving it somewhere else. And because it's a, uh, a, a higher resistance, you're making that voltage uh, and that potential difference even worse. So uh, the good news is that surge protection will cope with it and deal with it however it enters the building, uh, whether it enters galvanically through the earthing system or whether it comes in uh, induced into our main incoming uh, power cable. The SPD is capable of dealing with both of those events. So that, that's the good news. Um, so yes, you still want to have all your earths at the same potential. Um, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, and removing that link would only make the problem worse. You know? No, fair enough. Uh, how how does that interact when you have different earthing systems? If if it's 
localized TT or TNCS? Is there any other different considerations you need to make when applying to those sorts of different considerations? So for, for SPDs, there are. So you need to match your SPD to the earthing system that you've got. Uh, and there are different devices for TNS and TNCS, even TNC, if you come across some of those, it's very it's very rare in the UK, but, but we do get them sometimes, uh, and, and a TT device. So a TT device has got a slight difference in its neutral phase because we don't want earth leakage coming through the neutral phase. Uh, so again, for, for any electricians listening, if they are working on a project and they are used to buying one particular SPD, and now they're gonna be working on something a bit more rural and it's been rotted, so they've got a TT system, you're going to have to change the SPD you're used to buying because you're going to definitely need a TT device now. And um, they tend to be a little bit more expensive, not a lot, not a lot, maybe 10 quid per phase more. Um, one of the things that I don't really understand, I have to say, is that uh, TT devices, SPDs, can be used in any application. So I don't really understand why we don't just make all of them <laughs> and, and scrap all the other ones, and then there wouldn't be any confusion, would there? And economy of scale would mean that the price would probably come down. Um, but I, I, I do know that sometimes talking to some of the bigger uh, kind of uh, Form 4 Type 6 panel manufacturers, they quite specifically want a, a TNS application or a TNCS application. So they, they're not always quite so fond to take that TT device in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter to them, but it is what it is. But yeah, for the domestic kind of electricians out there that may may go off and work on a farm or something like that uh, occasionally, um, yeah, you need to be aware that for a TT uh, earthing application, you will need a specific SPD for that. The one you're probably commonly buying will not be suitable. Okay, now that's really good advice. In terms of the um, some of the applications, is it right that they have gas discharge um, yeah, so so um, SPDs fall into two, ignore all the types and things, they fall into two kind of camps really. Um, one will be varista based and one will be, uh, let's just call it gap based. Uh, it doesn't matter what the gap is. Some of them are, are specifically spark gaps, some of them are GDT, so gas discharge tube. Um, and they work in slightly different ways. A varista is a voltage limiting uh, discrete component. So it has a, a preset, if you want to call it that, level of voltage that it will allow through. And um, anything under that is fine. And when it goes over that, it will clamp that voltage down to whatever that level is. And typically here in the UK, most devices being sold will be probably about 1500 volts. So it will clamp it to that level. A, a gap-based device, whether it's GDT or spark gap-based, acts more like a voltage-driven switch. So it actually physically switches voltage off. So um, similar kind of thing, it sits there all the time, it's under that, that switching level or the voltage protection level is what it's actually called. Um, it will allow that uh, voltage and, and, and current whatever to pass. And as soon as it, it, it notices that it's about to go over it, it will uh, switch. Uh, um, it's, it's a normally open thing, it will, it will close the switch, thus creating the short circuit to earth. Uh, and it dumps all that current, uh, current uh, and voltage down to earth. And then they have to be very quick at basically reopening um, because you'll appreciate for that tiny uh, few nanoseconds that it is connected to earth, you're effectively sending grid to earth. So uh, we, we get a, a follow current and we have to be able to switch that follow current off uh, just as quickly. Um, and, and that's it really, That that in a nutshell, that's all SPDs do, they don't do anything that complicated they are effectively voltage driven switches or clamping circuits um, um i guess the big thing that a lot of electricians are missing is that they think about them in terms of being a voltage fuse which they absolutely are not they're not designed to fail no spd is designed to fail no matter how how cheaply you've bought it and if you've paid like two quid off alibaba it's not really designed to fail um and the standard for spds another different standard altogether um actually requires them to be able to cope with 20 events at the wave shape that they are specific to. So if you're buying a type one device, and that's a lightning related device, it has to be tested and developed to be able to deal with 20 events. If you're buying a type two, which I guess is what the majority of domestic sparkies would be buying, it's, it's, it's uh, 20 exposures to that 820 wave shape. If you are working in a commercial environment or industrial environment and you buy a combined type one and type two, then it has to be tested to both of those criteria. So actually that device is developed uh, and tested against 40 exposures because it's had 20 at the type one wave shape and 20 at the type two. If you're really lucky and you get a combined one, two and three, it has to be tested against all of those 
And the testing criteria for type three is even more stringent because I think that's 60 exposures. Um, so by the time you get your device, you know that in theory is capable of dealing with 20 lightning events, 20 large surge events, and 60 small transient events. Um, so, so people need to think about that and bear that in mind because the devices shouldn't fail and they shouldn't be failing. If you are experiencing failures, um, you may want to have a look at the installation to see if there's any reason that it's seeing a lot of uh, transient energy or, and I'm obviously going to say this, you should consider a different manufacturer. Uh, <laughs> doesn't necessarily matter who that is, but maybe think about a slightly different manufacturer to the one you've been buying if it keeps failing because they're not designed to fail. No, no, I mean, that's, that's obviously a, a top tip. So in terms of overcurrent protective devices, then because obviously yeah. this is always always a, a hot topic in terms of them being um, supplied, let's say pre main switch um, and let's say by the 100 amp DNO cutout. Or should we be primarily considering um, devices, you know, specifically rated within the consumer units, et cetera? What, what's the sort of preference and thinking around those? So the, the science doesn't really change. Manufacturer's advice will change and please uh, stick to what your manufacturer tells you. But I'll tell you what the science says. The science says the SPDs have to have a, a withstand capability to current. Um, they have to have that because they're going to be exposed along with all of that voltage to some current. Um, so they, as a manufacturer, we have to put a limit on that and we have to tell you what that is. Most domestic type two SPDs are rated to around 125 amps. They're not fused, all right? This is not by fusing internally. Very few SPDs are fused. You can buy them specifically fused, but they tend to be bigger and you would know about it because they also tend to be very, very expensive. Um, so um, most SPDs just have it by way of construction. Uh, in order for an event to destroy that SPD, it would have already needed to destroy your main switch before it got to it. So if you've got an 80 amp head coming into uh, a domestic property and you've got a 100 uh, amp switch and you've got your uh, BS88 main fuses or whatever as it comes in, by the time it gets to the SPD, it would have to be 125 amps or more to damage it. Well, it's already damaged everything else before you ever get there. So you don't really need the overcurrent protection. And this is the critical part induction is the biggest issue for SPDs. So you want your lengths to be as short as possible. If you're putting overcurrent protection in when it's not needed, you are effectively making the SPD less good at its job because you're just increasing cable length that you didn't really need. Now, I know that there are a host of consumer unit manufacturers out there that are telling people that a 32 amp uh, B-type breaker is absolutely fine. Um, that's their advice, and, and uh, who am I to uh, disagree with that? Uh, but absolutely, if you're buying one of our devices, you absolutely do not need overcurrent protection, okay? You absolutely do not. And generally speaking, the science doesn't really change. Um, also, you shouldn't ever really use a type B with an SPD because you probably want a type C to do with the inrush current a little bit better. Um, so our advice uh, is that you should fit the largest SPD you possibly can without giving yourself a problem with discrimination further downstream. Um, and if you don't need it, you should avoid it altogether. So certainly domestically, we never tell people. And even some uh, industrial applications, because we have devices, some of our devices are rated to 160 amps, some are, uh, are even rated to 250 amps, we even have a couple that are rated to 315 amps. Um, and in those industrial applications, if you don't need overcurrent protection, we are telling people not to have it. Um, and uh, yeah, I know I, I know I plough a, a lonely uh, furrow on that, um, because uh, almost everyone else out there is telling you, yes, fine, just stick it on a 62-amp breaker or a 32-amp breaker, you'll be fine. Um, the other thing as well, of course, is that SPDs are not tested against breakers. They're tested against fuses because you need to have a standard response that you can always rely on, and everyone's breaker is slightly different. So if you are using breakers, uh, you must ensure that the breaker outperforms the corresponding fusing. Um, so you will need to get the, uh, the, the, the little uh, a diagram that they will show you of the performance curve for that breaker to make sure that it's outperforming the performance curve of the corresponding fuse. Right. Okay, oh, brilliant. Um, the, the, one of the other considerations as well is obviously site, the sighting of the SPD yep. itself um, within its own enclosure, within the consumer unit. Is there a better arrangement? So I don't really have a problem with them in the consumer unit. 
uh, at all. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. There's nothing wrong with it. It would be a, a bit damning on our whole kind of industry if we were to suggest that by putting an SPD in a consumer unit, somehow you're going to see some damage because it's there to stop damage. That, that would be a bit silly. Um, my preference is for it to go in a separate enclosure. Uh, but that's only like a personal preference. It, 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 there's no engineering behind that. There's no science. There's no technology that says you should do that. Um, as near as possible to the point of entry, because the further into your LV distribution architecture you position it, you've just got unprotected length of cable. And anything else that shares that containment with that could have whatever that transient is induced into it. So if you have brought a cable in and it's sitting in a, in a duct or a bit of tray or basketware or whatever, uh, and you've also thought, oh, do you know what? I'm just going to use that for my uh, some of my fire cables. I'm just going to use that for one of my data cables. I'll stick a bit of Cat6 on there as well. Um, if you've put your SPD further into the archi architecture, then quite simply, you are just exposing those other services to it being induced into them. Um, so as near the point of entry as possible, but please be sensible with that. You don't have to literally put it on the wall. I work in some environments, Gary, where that's absolutely what they do. Uh, mm. But I work in a lot of very, very highly sensitive sites that I'm not allowed to talk about. Uh, and they will absolutely interrupt the service the minute it enters the structure. So absolutely at the point it comes through the wall, that's where the SPD goes because they they are so risk averse, they can't have uh, any lengths of unprotected cable. But it should be as close as possible. There are some consumer unit manufacturers out there who... Um, built their consumer unit before SPDs were a thing. So uh, they might not be able to put their uh, SPD right next to the switch. So it might go, and we all know what I'm talking about, it might have to go at the complete other end of the consumer unit. Um, it's not great, but you know what? They're unlikely to completely redesign and re-engineer their entire consumer unit range just to improve the performance of the SPD a little bit. Um, transits are over very quickly very very quickly so 25 nanoseconds for a uh, 820 wave shape typically that's the response time of your spd so most of your other lb equipment doesn't even know anything happened because it's working in milliseconds so it's got no idea that there was a transient so broadly speaking it's not a huge problem is it ideal no not really does that mean the whole electrical industry needs to redesign everything just to keep sean happy absolutely not so um, we could try yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean yeah i would love them to try. i would love them to try but yeah, it's uh, it, it's not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. I would rather that the SPD was there than people get hung up too much on oh, it's the last you know it's the last kind of uh, uh, device in my whole consumer unit. Is that going to give me a problem? That's it. The fact that you've got one there is a thumbs up from me. So um, yeah, that that's the that's the good thing. Brilliant. I mean, in terms of obviously we've spoken quite a lot about types one and two. What sort of demand are you now seeing for the Type Threes and in the installations? Yeah, uh, increasing a lot. So um, the things that Type Threes protect are the things that we really should be thinking about protecting as well. That's kind of the irony. Um, so uh, uh, all of our safety critical things, so uh, emergency lighting, uh, fire alarm panels, uh, boiler control, LED drivers, these are all the things that typically fail because they just don't have the withstand capability. Um, so again, going back to the wiring regulations and you'll see table 443 with the different uh, withstand capabilities, the UW ratings that equipment needs to have at various stages to the, to the system. So either 6kV or 4kV or 2.5kV or 1.5kV, those different categories of equipment. Um, the most sensitive equipment uh, is the stuff that we need to look after and protect because it's the things that are most likely to fail. And I can tell everybody now that in terms of the failures that we see uh, at Dean, nothing fails as often as, uh, as LEDs, LED drivers uh, and uh, boiler controls. They're just not robust enough. They're, they're just not. Uh, but of course, we're all moving towards those things in the same way we are with uh, ground source heat pumps and air source heat pumps, uh, EV chargers for our cars. Uh, all of these things are areas where you should probably think potentially about installing a Type 3. They're very small. They're very convenient. They're very cheap. It's about the size of a box of Tic Tacs. It's probably going to cost you about 40 quid. Uh, and the last time I checked, uh, uh, an air source heat pump is a couple of thousand pounds. So why wouldn't you buy a 40 quid SPD to protect the control circuits in it? Um, I know I would. So, um, yeah. No, definitely. The um, one, one of the other things, obviously, you, we've kind of spoken, I suppose, heavily about surge protection here, but li lightning protection. How, how would you, I suppose, whether you want to talk in rule of thumb, maybe, or, or some, some generic terms, how do you complete the assessments on what should have lightning protection what shouldn't so that if if somebody was to look at 
say a building and have have some concerns what would be some red flags for them okay so i mean there's a there's a very clearly defined risk assessment process within 6305 within the standard but if people are looking for red flags uh, and I, I quite like i like that more than rules of thumb uh, if they're looking for red flags um uh, overall volume of a structure is much more important than the height of a structure uh, the assessment only really assesses height twice and it assesses volume four times so volume becomes much more important so a, a a very tall building isn't necessarily more at risk than a building that is only two stories high but um, we'll, we'll use a big distribution warehouse for example these days some of those big distribution warehouses are 250 meters long so it's that volume of space that becomes the, the, the real thing uh, and then of course there are things like the presence of ex zones or flammability whether that's flammable equipment or stores or whether it's uh, a structure that's made of flammable materials so if you're doing something with a thatch roof if you're doing something with cedar shingles if you're doing something with glue lamb beams some kind of fancy modern architecture those are things you would think about the other main things are uh, buildings that are occupied for long periods of time so student accommodation is a, is a prime example of that um, students have various different times they're coming and going to lectures and things like that so it has heavy occupation uh, and then total number of people in the structure is another big driver. So if you've got a building um, and it's only going to going to have sort of three or four people in it, well, you know what, that's probably not enough of a driver. But if you've got a, a factory that's going to have uh, 250 people in, then absolutely. So and those really are all of the things that the risk assessment process itself looks at. Um, Typically, if you're going to do a full risk assessment for not just loss of life, but loss of service as well, you're going to be looking at about 150 different data points. So it's quite a lot of information that it goes into what firefighting equipment they've got, what the building's made of, how long it's occupied for, what's the floor made of inside, what's the floor made of outside, because it's thinking about uh, touch potential and step potential. Um, so it looks at quite a lot of things. And you can get a risk assessment done quite easily. Uh, we offer them as a paid for service, uh, but you could probably approach most uh, specialist line protection installers and a lot of them will do it for you for free. Um, just be careful what you get for free. Uh, but um, yeah, most of them will, will do it for you. Um, but if you see any of those red flags, so if you are listening to this and you're, you're a, a Sparky and you're gonna be working on some kind of commercial or industrial project, um, and there are lots of people in there or maybe they deal with some solvents or something like that. Uh, those are all the kind of things that should set off a, a red flag for you. And you should be thinking, you probably want to make sure you're having some kind of risk assessment done for this. So. No, yeah, safety first. And like you say, um, risk to life is always the priority, isn't it? So. Uh, yes, I mean, effectively within the standard, there are four different things you can assess. So there is loss of life, there is loss of service, there is loss of heritage, and there is uh, financial loss. So there, are, and each one of them is an entirely separate thing to do. Um, I personally, in fact, us as, as a corporately, we will only ever do at least one and two. So that is the loss of life and the loss of service. We never look at any of those things in isolation. And then if loss of heritage is applicable or loss of financial is applicable, we will add that in as well. But we're always looking at at least loss of life and the loss of service. So. Hmm. No, I mean, it's been a, a really fun, fascinating uh, conversation with you. And I've, uh, I've definitely got a few things ticking in my head to take away and think about so you know um very much uh, thank you for for joining me today I, I do have one final question that i ask of all my guests uh, what's your favorite movie okay so part of me wants to say something really highbrow and make out like i'm <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a real film buff uh, i do like films a lot um so i absolutely love uh, glenn gary glenn ross it's absolutely one of my favorite films but I guess if I'm being honest, my favourite film really is the one I can watch all of the time and any time again and again and again and know it virtually word for word. So I will be more honest and say that my favourite film is uh, Where Eagles Dare. Where Eagles Dare. That's not one I'm familiar with. Um, who's in that it's, one? It's Eastwood, Richard Burton. Uh, it's an Alistair MacLean story. It's uh, entirely uh, made up World War Two story about a, a, a risky mission to uh, uh, to rescue a, a, a captured uh, American general, um, and it, it unravels bit by bit, and no one's who they appear to be, uh, and it's um, it's fabulous. I think it holds a record as well. I'm sure my son told me this that it holds a record for the most number of people that get shot or killed in a film, um, because they 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 they're just it's, it's ridiculous they never it's one of those films where they never have to reload their weapon they're just constantly firing and firing and firing and firing and of course the good guys never miss and, and the bad guys never hit so uh, clint eastwood probably kills about eight thousand people in that movie i think um so yeah so where eagles dare is my absolute favorite film 
Oh, brilliant. Yeah. No, it's been a lovely chatting with you, Sean. Thank you very much. No worries. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening.